0: Well, good, uh, good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Well, as uh, I see, it, most of you were able to uh, uh, get the material on Titus, and I, I hope you have that in front of you. You can see there are a number of introductory matters I'd like to deal with. I hope you don't mind me doing this because, um, well, in particularly dealing with Paul, Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament and each one of them, um, obviously you would argue this anyway, but each one of them is unique and is dealing with a unique situation. Titus is one of the three, what we call, pastoral epistles. They are written at the end of Paul's life. Um, I will give you a little historical context in just a minute. And the reason I really do enjoy studying the pastoral epistles, and I've taught the pastoral epistles, and my... Lead pastor of my church where I'm on staff, Um, he asked me to do a devotional each time the elders meet, and this year he's wanted me to do it on the pastoral epistles. So I put a a 17 page uh, study together on the pastorals. And it's so valuable to see Paul's heart at the end of his life. And what he's concerned about is the church. That's what he's concerned about. And so he writes these letters. uh, both to first and second Timothy, and then Titus are two of his disciples that have planted and are overseeing churches. Uh, Titus is overseeing churches on the island of Crete, and Timothy is overseeing churches in Ephesus, which was a much larger area that he would have been covering. but anyway, what you really see here is is paul 's heart and also responding to what were some of the threats to the church there in the eastern Mediterranean, um, 66, 67, 68 A.D. And so uh, there's some of the things I just want to briefly look at by way of introduction. But that's one of the, to me, one of the real values of studying the pastoral epistles, because we really learn a lot about the church and about the kinds of things that Paul uh, was interested in. So if you want to look at the <clears throat> the material under introductory matters, I'd if you don't mind, I'm going to read a couple of these things. The pastoral epistles are the final three epi- letters Paul wrote before he was executed by Rome in A.D. 68. He was executed at the heights of Nero's persecutions. When Nero was just, you know, you've you heard of him, haven't you? He's really a bizarre Caesar and uh, undeniably mentally unstable near the end of his life, committed suicide. But um, Paul is one of the uh, executions, and Peter was the other one. They would probably have been in the same prison, probably overlapping one another, but um, they would have been executed. Peter was a Jew, so he was executed by crucifixion. Paul was a Roman citizen, so he was executed by decapitation. Uh, That may be a gruesome tidbit of knowledge, but that would have been the reality. They comprise the final thoughts on the church, as both an organism and an organization. Now, to me, that phrase is important because the way the New Testament presents the church is it does present it as an organism, the living body of Christ over which he is head. But it's also an organization, the local organizational structure of the church with leaders, responsibilities, etc. And so he will deal with both of these things as he goes through, um, as we go through our study. 1 Timothy and Titus are addressed to his disciples I already mentioned that Timothy and Titus who were pastoring churches respectively in Ephesus and Crete Timothy, Ephesus, Titus, Crete Second Timothy was written from a Roman prison in the last days of his life as he awaited execution First Timothy was written about the fall of A.D. 62 Titus in the summer of A.D. 66 and then as I mentioned a moment ago Timothy in the fall of A.D. 67, shortly before he was executed. As I've done with all of these, I give you a little synthetic chart that uh, may or may not be helpful, but uh, I had to do one of these for every book of the Bible when I was in graduate school. But when I found out that Swindoll's are available online free, his are far better than mine. So you're getting his synthetic charts, which are really quite well done, but... It's just a visual, but it's a visual snapshot of the book. Every book of the Bible, you can do one of these, and, and uh, I've always found it helpful to do that. I'll mention a bit of this a little bit later on. Now let me deal with the historical situation, because I think this is very interesting, and a lot of times people don't think about this and think about how you fit this into the history of Paul's life. I think you all know, at least in a cursory way, uh, that the book of second half of the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 13 on, is the account of Paul's missionary journeys. And there are three missionary journeys that he does. In the last several chapters of the book of Acts, Paul has been charged with a crime by the Roman Empire. He is put in prison, but the charges are leveled by a group of Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin. And so in the book of Acts ends in Acts 28 with Paul in prison. That's it. That's how it is. But then you read Timothy, for 2nd Timothy, and you read Titus and you read those and you say, well, the geography and things that he's talking about there don't fit with his missionary journeys in Acts. They don't fit at all. And so what most expositors have concluded and I certainly have reached that conclusion, Paul was released from prison. He did not he was not brought to trial. And the reason that usually is given and I think it makes sense uh, Roman law and and again, I think you probably know this too one of the values of Rome was they codified law. Rule of law was important to them, and so they codified law, and they had rigorous, legal, uh, we would call them due process procedures. And one of them was, you can only be in prison for two years, and if your accusers don't show up, you're freed. Regardless of the seriousness of the crime, if your accusers don't show up, you're free. And the thought is usually because when you're in Acts 28, Paul has been in prison almost two years, and so the thought was that the Sanhedrin never came to Jerusalem—sorry, uh, never came to Rome from Jerusalem—to to go through the trial and present the evidence of accusations against Paul. And since they didn't do that, at the end of the two years, he would have been released. And then, again, there is, there is is extra-biblical, it's not in the Bible, but there's extra-biblical evidence that Paul then did engage in another ministry, a fourth missionary journey, where he went to Spain. And then went down through the rest of the Mediterranean, ended up coming back through Crete and up into what today would be Bosnia and all those areas. He was arrested in Illyricum and then put on trial and executed in sixty-eight. <clears throat> Uh, And I think that fits probably all of the evidence that we have. And that's what I summarize here in this historical situation. I gave you the details, and that's why I'm not going to read it. I just summarized it for you. The evidence that we have that leads to the conclusion that he was released and did engage in a fourth, what you would probably call a fourth missionary journey, And the map that's on the second page is a suggested map of of what that missionary journey looked like. Okay? And, I mean, most of you have an idea what I'm talking about. And you can see that the the, the thought is, because there is extra-biblical evidence for this, that he did go to Spain. Now, why is that important? Because if you remember in the book of Romans, twice he says to the Roman church, I want to go to Spain. And as I'm headed to Spain, I'm going to stop off and see you. But I'm headed to Spain. Because that was his strategy, to plant churches, key churches in the eastern Mediterranean, and when he was done with that, plant churches in the western Mediterranean. And so that was his strategic plan. And again, just the inferences we can draw with how the book of Acts ends, and then the geographical stuff that's in the pastoral epistles, plus all the extra biblical evidence, would, it would pretty much validate that he did engage in additional years of ministry in the Mediterranean area. And this map, and there's a little box up here that explains it, this map just suggests the different places that he went to. And then where he was arrested, maybe even rearrested, if you will, and taken to Rome um, that second time, had another trial and was then imprisoned uh, and, and executed. And that does seem to fit with both the biblical inferences plus all the extra-biblical evidence that we have. And I think it's just important for us to be able to do that. I mean, I feel very strongly that everything in the Bible is historically accurate and defensible. And the the way we just dealt with the historical background situation of the pastoral epistles fits much better with the evidence that we have. So, whether you think that's important or I think it's real important, so I thought I'd share it with you. Do you have any questions about it
1: did, did, did he write anything from his final imprisonment Do you know uh, right?
0: second second Timothy he wrote while he was in prison. He okay. tells us that, and he tells us what what he was doing and and what the situation was. Yes, he would have written second timothy in his okay. in his first imprisonment he wrote four epistles uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. But in his second imprisonment, which we just summarized, he wrote 2 Timothy. Mm-hmm. That's a good question.
1: Is there, is there a, a, a listing of, of the New Testament books, uh, chronological instead of they listed in the Bible?
0: Of Paul's writings, oh. Of all the New Testament? Yes. Um, I have one. We've used several of them over the years, yes. I don't have that with me, but there is. There's a chronological uh, listing of the New Testament books. Uh-huh. Paul's for, Paul's epistles. His first epistle was Galatians, written in AD forty nine, and his last epistle was Second Timothy, written in AD sixty seven. And the rest of them are pretty easy to timeline out. The 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 the, the uh, controversy is where you timeline the Gospels. There's there is controversy there. Not everybody. I think I think the evidence is pretty. Easy you on putting that together. Yeah, I'll be glad to share that with you. Since I'm old, Fred, I, you might want to email me to remind me because I might forget. Because <laughs> in my old age, I'm forgetting things.
1: Isn't no, uh, the difference between epistle and letter...
0: There is no difference. There's synonyms.
1: <clears throat> so, Jim, as he's traveling around and making these four journeys, he's establishing churches by... Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking to existing believers, uh, and not the, always
0: existing believers. He wins by proclaiming the gospel, and then those believers he disciples.
1: Okay, and what would the emphasis there be that he was I, I, he was evangelizing as he went, and was he going to specific areas that that where a church was was formed or was he creating the church as
0: it depends it it depends it was both it's both and Uh, in some cases and especially when you read in the first missionary journey which is in Acts 13 and into 14 he is telling us that Luke's on his writing but he goes Paul goes to the synagogue and preaches first and then he'll go to Gentiles and that makes sense because to go to the synagogue those people already have a an established understanding of biblical prophecy and truth in the Old Testament. And of course, you know what Paul's message would have been. Here's the Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. Let me tell you what happened and so uh and that was very effective and it, it worked. Um, but yet there were many, many, many rejected. But as as the missionary journeys go on then there's less and less of an emphasis of going to the synagogue simply because he's now as he gets into Greece, and so on. there's just there's more Greek, Greco-Roman people and fewer and fewer Jews. That's simply the geography of the situation. And it's another thing that's really fascinating and maybe boring all of you with some of this. But <coughs> it's interesting to study sometime of the difference of how Paul approaches Jews with the message and how he approaches Gentiles. And I just I'm teaching Acts in another one of my classes, and we just finished the first missionary journey. Uh, Paul. And when you look at how he, how he dealt with situations in Antioch, of Pisidia, and of, of uh, a couple of the other, and then when he goes to Lystra, these are all heavily Jewish populated, and he goes to Lystra where there are no Jews at all. And the message and the focus is totally different, totally different. But Paul's shrewd. He exegetes his audience. My audience doesn't have any Jews, so it's not going to do much good for me to quote the Old Testament. Because they have no understanding of the Old Testament. they never even probably heard of the Old Testament. Whereas Jews would. They read that every synagogue, uh, every Sabbath in the synagogue. So it's just really interesting um, to, to contrast, for example, the Pentecost Sermon of Peter in Acts 2 and Paul's messages in Acts 17, where he's in the Areopagus, in the center of the intellectual world, Athens. He doesn't even mention the Old Testament. He doesn't even quote. He quotes from their philosophers twice. Why does he do that? Because that's what they're familiar with. They're not familiar with the Levitical law or Moses. They probably haven't even heard of Moses. Now it's just that that reminds us we need to make sure that we know our audience before we start talking. Because if you're talking to a, a secular person who's never opened the Bible, it's not going to probably be real helpful to start talking about Moses or King David you know, I mean, because if, unless they have had a l- strong religious background and have left that, they, you will have no authority. Now, you're talking about all these old st- I sort of remember hearing about some of that. But it's just, it's, that's part of what Jesus says in, in Luke 16 being shrewd. Being shrewd. But Jesus says that the sons of darkness are often more shrewd than the sons of light. And that's true. And it's just it's it's being careful and understanding about whom you're talking to and, and the strategy you use to address them, okay all right, let's look then at um, again, I'm not going to deal any more with the historical situation, but I thought I would just quickly go over because we're going to see this a number of times right below the map, the false teaching in the pastorals and again that's first second Timothy and titus and uh, I'm not going to read all these but A refutation, you know what that means, refutation, refuting. Refutation of false teaching makes up a large part of these three epistles. Similarity of vocabulary and emphasis suggests the problem was the same on Crete as at Ephesus. And what I did here in the little bullets that are below that brief paragraph are just some of the key phrases Paul uses. Demonic teaching, a danger from within the church, Abandoning, turning away, destroying, a preoccupation of trivialities, um, divisive con- uh, concern with petty disputes and debates and quarrels, etc. The, 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 the biggest tr- challenge is, and it's, an, it's a formidable challenge, is Paul doesn't say, here's what they believed, and here is five paragraphs summarizing their beliefs. He doesn't do that. He just hits certain things that come up. So it's hard for us to put together a fully integrated understanding of, the, of all the content of the false teaching. Those last couple sentences make sense to you? So what, what we have to take the pieces that, he, that he's just dealing with and try to put them together and say, this is probably what this false teaching really was all about in terms of its content. But that, that for you and for me even today, that's not hard to figure that out. Because there's always false teaching. And you and I who know the truth must be able to respond to that false teaching. And sometimes we're responding to it, and then you try to put the whole thing together. That's a little more difficult, and that's the challenge we have with pastors. But there's one thing that's really clear, and that's that last paragraph before we get into the actual text. The antidote to false teaching, and Paul will say this over and over again, is sound doctrine. Do you see that? You might want to memorize that. It'll be on the quiz next week. The antidote to false teaching is always sound doctrine. And that's what Paul is going to say to Timothy and Titus. Teach your people sound doctrine. Teach your people the truth of the Word of God. Teach your people the truth about Jesus. Teach your... That's what he keeps saying to them. So, to me, and I'm not that smart, but to me, that's as applicable in 2018 as it was in AD 64, or 63, or 65, or whenever exactly we're we're dealing with what Paul was... was, uh, when he was writing this. Because I am... Um, well, I was going to use a real strong word, so I'll just say it. To I'm concerned <laughs> that in many local churches today, the vast majority of people sitting in the pew do not know sound doctrine. They just don't. And by the way, that, that phrase, sound doctrine, is a, is a Greek phrase. It's, it's in, the, in the New Testament epistles here, Second Timothy and Titus. And that Greek phrase, sound, can be translated healthy. That which is conducive to healthy spiritual living. So, um, sound doctrine produces godly living. It just it does. That's the truth. That's the proposition. That's that's the absolute centrality of what I do. I've done it all my life, and what I want to continue doing now that I'm. Well, my wife doesn't think it fits that me, but retired. She says, "Honey, whatever that means, that's not what you are." But, so, but anyway, I shouldn't have said that. I just meant that even in the, I want to continue doing that as long as I um, have the ability to do it, because I really believe that the more you understand about God, the more you understand about the, His nature, His character, His plan, His purposes, and His Word. the The more you grow. Spiritual health is not achieved any other way than being in the Word of God. That is, just, there's no other way it happens. Uh, Oprah is not the key to sound doctrine and a healthy living. And I don't mean, I'm, not, I'm just choosing her because everybody knows who she is. I'm not just taking pot shots at her. but
1: now you're talking about sound doctrine that is taught in Christian evangelical
0: churches. Yes, David, you're right. I mean, I, that's her real concern.
1: In the last you know, few weeks, I don't you know, I'm a passion here, so. it is.
0: it's a passion It is. It's a real passion of mine.
1: The difficult thing for me to watch is a lot of people that attend church don't deliver between canon and church. Mm-hmm. That's right. No, that's, that's
0: right. And I'm, of course, that. Uh, that is a very, very real passion of mine that it is the Word of God that is the, the source of our authority. That's where we begin thinking about truth. And, and whether you're dealing with issues of creation or whether you're dealing with issues of ethics or morals, uh, it is, I tell, tell my students this all the years I've taught. The first question you should always ask is Has God spoken to this? That means you have to go into the Word. You, you have to seek God's Word to find the answer to that question. Because if not, I mean, that's what where American civilization is today in the 21st century is, and I think you've heard me say this. We are a civilization now, ethically speaking, firmly anchored in midair. We, ha- we have no foundation for ethics in our culture anymore. We really don't. And that's why it's so fluid. I mean, people just... People have no anchor for their lives when it comes to ethical and moral behavior. They don't, and I, I don't mean that as, as in an unkind way. I, I, I really don't. I, re, I I say that in a very sad way because people are just—they have no authority in their lives. They they have no moral, ethical foundation. They just live and. They just react and just whatever feels good, whatever I want to do, I'm autonomous. I do it, and then they live, and they, they end up living with some tragic consequences of some really stupid decisions they made. And again, I don't mean that unkindly. It's just because there are there's no foundation, it's not being taught. And uh, you, I mean, my daughter's reading coordinator in District 66, and she is just, she's just aching for some of these kids. These you know seven eight year old kids who can't read. That's why she that's her passion. And you know you know if you can't read, you're not you're not going to be able to do anything. And that's just she's just so and and in the the almost almost every single case, these kids that she's been she's working with, their home situation is a disaster, incredibly dysfunctional. And I mean, there's just, and there's just no, these little kids, they just have no anchor, no stability. A couple, one of her kids, that child doesn't, every time that child leaves school, that child is not sure where she's going to go, whether she's going to be with her mom or grandma or her aunt or a neighbor. Now just think of that day after day after day. and, And you just think there's no stability and it's just, so you cannot expect, that child to grow up into a well-functioning adult. <clears throat> only by the grace of God is that going to happen. And so that's what Joanna, and she just says, Dad, I don't, I, she says, this is so, it, it gets worse every year. It just gets worse. More, and by the means, it, more and more kids like this. And I said, honey, your, your job, you can't fix it all. Your job is one person at a time. That's the only thing, that's just you and I. If you think Congress is going to pass a law that's going to fix all this, the answer is not in Washington. And well, anyway, I didn't want to get into that. But so Paul is just—it's that's why I love the pastoral epistles, and that's why I love the Book of Titus, because you see, you see an elderly man, shortly about to go home to be with Jesus, pouring out his heart to these guys that he's discipled. This is what's important, guys. Keep your focus on this. And that's why it's a neat book to study. So I'm ready to study it, are you? But Woody has a question.
1: Hi, I just wanted to share something I read in the introduction. Uh, it that Titus, it's quite possible that Titus had written to Paul to report this problem and ask for spiritual advice. Mm-hmm. Said, above that, it said that he was to complete the organization of congregations in that region just met with considerable opposition and insubordination in the church, especially from the Jews.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah, that's right, and that's we'll see it right away. Paul is telling him, "Organize the church in Crete. Get it organized. Get get it functioning." And the pushback that he gets uh, in in many uh, not all, but in many of the cases are from We'll give them a name, Judaizers, and we'll talk about who they are and, and, why, and why that's an appropriate name for them. But yeah, that's a good little summary. Let's look at the introduction, which is uh, the salutation. That's kind of the official name of the it's a greeting. But there are some um, very rich, rich phrases and terms here. Now, I want you to notice Paul, I'm in verse 1, chapter 1, book of Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's the only time in Paul's letter, all 13 of them, where he identifies himself as a servant, it's a doulos, a slave of God. He always says, I'm a slave or a doulos of Jesus Christ. But he says here, I'm a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, why does he do that? Why this unique because Paul not Paul doesn't I don't think Paul ever writes anything flippantly. He thinks through what he's going to say. He's talking to Jews. Okay. If he is addressing, and he apparently is, among others, Judaizers, Jews, what he's doing is he's putting himself in the same category of a long line of Jewish authoritative prophets and speakers. All of the prophets of the Old Testament, might major and minor, identify themselves as a servant of God. So Paul is wanting them to connect him with all of the Old Testament figures of authority, like the Isaiahs and Jeremiahs and Daniels of the Old Testament. Paul saying, I am in that long line, which is accurate. And so there's an intentionality there of, of how he identifies himself. He is a servant of Christ, as he says in his other 12 epistles. But here there's some unique things that he wants to stress So, he identifies himself as a servant of God. It's the only place where in the, in the New Testament he calls himself that. Every other New Testament book, uh, well, uh, I should say of his letters, he calls himself a servant of Christ. But he calls himself also an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we've we, we, have, we have <coughs> talked about this before. An apostle. Apostolon is the Greek word. A sent out one. A commissioned one. But a sent out one, a commissioned one with authority. So if he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent-out one, a commissioned one with authority. Whose authority? Christ's authority. So he will argue. He will argue this in Galatians. He will argue this in 2 Corinthians, where his apostleship is challenged. He will say, "I I am an authoritative apostle representing Jesus Christ. And so that's an extraordinary claim. One other point about this. In Acts chapter 1, with Judas dead and committed suicide and all that, the eleven get together, and you remember what they do? We've got to find a replacement for Judas. And so they, you know, in the upper room, they agree to do this, and they set a criterion for apostleship. Do you remember the key criterion? What was it? To have seen the resurrected Jesus. Wait a minute. I don't ever remember Paul being with Jesus. I don't ever remember him being at the cross. I don't remember me. So how could he claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus?
1: The
0: road to Damascus. And he will always appeal to that. I met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. Acts 9, Acts 22 is the account of that. And so he had... But see, that's why people would take pot shots out. You weren't with Jesus. You weren't part of the 11 or 12. How can you claim to be an apostle? Because I saw and met the resurrected Jesus Christ in Damascus Road, and he commissioned me to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That's why. I mean, that's a summary of how he defended himself. And so, you know, there, that's not an issue here, but he just he, he does something, which is really unique, I'm a servant of God, a doulos, a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so it's just it's a powerful introduction. Why do that? Okay. Yeah. To establish his authority. Listen to what I'm about to say. I'm I'm speaking for God here because I'm speaking for Jesus here. And it's it's just, it's, it's important to establish that. So it's worthwhile to listen to what I'm about to say. There's something else I want you to see about verse one. He now introduces himself. He tells tells us how he sees and envisions his ministry, how he sees and envisions his commissioning from Jesus. I'm a servant. I'm an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, like I mentioned a moment ago, Paul never writes a phrase or uses a word or writes a sentence flippantly. Every word and every phrase is important. So he's telling us something here. I'm a servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, Without getting into the controversy of God's elect, can we just set this aside for a minute? Because, I mean, you could, sim- you could translate that for the sake of the faith of the called out ones by God, because that's what eklectos means, elect means. Um, for the sake of the faith, what, what faith? Their saving faith or their sustaining faith? Okay, you're looking at me like I'm speaking in German. <clears throat> the word faith in the New Testament is from the Greek word "pistis," and it's used in two ways. The saving faith, where you, you hear the message, you understand the message, and you respond by putting it faith in Jesus Christ. You hear the message, the gospel, that his death, burial, and resurrection was for you. You appropriate that to your life by faith. That's saving faith. The result of that is you are justified. The other use of pistis in the New Testament is sustaining faith. In other words, you, you put your faith in him, that is, in Jesus, and the result is justification This is the focus on the event of your life. The sustaining faith focuses on the process, which of course is sanctification. I'm running out of space, but you can figure that out. So, which one is he talking about here? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. It could be both. Probably the emphasis is on that, because he goes on and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, don't, you, don't you to miss this. The grammar of this is quite powerful. Truth is connected with godliness. Sound doctrine produces Godly living. And he's making this connection right out of the chute. What's my calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as a servant of God, to serve in developing the faith of God's elect, the knowledge of the truth, which leads to, which produces, which facilitates godliness. And that's Paul's ministry from AD thirty-six until AD sixty-eight, when he was executed. That's what he did. He started it in Damascus days after he met the Lord. He has a lot. He had a. He had to go through a lot more. He wasn't ready to do the missionary journey, so God takes another thirteen years of getting ready for that. But that's what Paul done. He was so trained in it, it's like Moses. He was so well-trained, terrific education in the Greco-Roman world at the University of Tarsus, and a terrific education in Gamaliel I, the most prominent rabbi as he sat as the Pharisee in the Sanhedrin. And he was ready. And that's why with zeal, he says, with a good conscience, I was persecuting the church. Because I thought they were a bunch of wackos until I met Jesus. And he switched all that zeal and all that energy and all that training to doing what? The knowledge of the truth, which, of course, that's what I'm focusing on. And so that's what his epistles, his epistles are all about truth. They're all about the focus and centrality of the truth about Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world, as the author of life. I mean, all those phrases he uses to describe Jesus in his epistles. And so that's a, it's just, that's, oh man, did Paul have a, a significant self-understanding of his, of his ministry? You bet he did. And all that God had been doing to prepare him for this, he just leverages all of that to accomplish this remarkable legacy of the apostle to the Gentiles. He took it to the Greco-Roman world and changed the Roman Empire his legacy over the next couple hundred years is is the fundamental alteration of everything in the mediterranean world from
1: paganism
0: to christianity that's that's a significant legacy a couple of hands up here yeah
1: when <clears throat> when uh, on the road to Met- damascus jesus said to him why persecuteth thou me right. and he made that yeah, it seemed like, to me, that opened his eyes mm-hmm. to see what he was actually
0: doing. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: <clears throat>
0: and it's towards, it, when he was persecuting the church, he was really persecuting Jesus. That's how he puts it. But yeah, yeah, very. And you're right, I mean, it it's it, 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 what knocked him on the ground literally, but also figuratively. And he had to reorder his whole life on the premise that Jesus is my Messiah, which was a very, very difficult thing for a Jewish person in the first century to embrace.
1: Because they were looking for mm-hmm.
0: Messiah. Well, and I know you've heard them, probably you've heard it this Sunday on Easter sermons or whatever, that or Good Friday sermons. They, you know, the early, the first century, was not expecting a suffering servant Messiah. They were expecting a conquering Messiah, which is, you, know, you think, how could they could they do that because it is clear in the prophets that he would suffer before he ruled but you know it's, you know, it's just the way it was yeah I thought I saw another hand no? Alright now I, I want to, we're not quite done with verse 1 yet but if, if you look at those key words for the sake of the faith knowledge of the truth which accords with, facilitates is Godliness and godliness, um, it's one of those words that that's an appropriate translation, but it's one of those words that what all does that mean? But godliness has to do with the righteous living of someone who is walking with Christ. What does that look like? Well, a nice place to start would be like the fruit of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, all those wonderful, there's nine quality traits there. But it's also the things that the Lord Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's matters of the heart, it's matters of the mind, it's matters of our, of our actions. That's how we think, it's how we worship, it's how we live. The Old Testament said, and it's repeated in the New Testament, we're to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a comprehensive, total, all-inclusive love and devotion to him. How long does it take us to attain godliness? It takes the rest of our life. But that's all right. I mean, again, that's the difference between how pistis is used in terms of its goals Saving faith, the event, sustaining faith, the process. Paul's interested in both. That's why I think probably we would want to think broadly about how he's using faith here. It's not just the saving faith. It's the sustaining faith of God's chosen ones. Okay? So it's just, you know, if you, I don't know if you do things like this, but... In verse 1, faith, truth, and godliness should be circled and lines connecting them. That's just, that's what he's laying out. It's a a tremendous summary of, of how Paul saw his life and his ministry. This is what he was doing passionately. Now, the first words, what time is it? Oh, we're in good shape. The first word is, I'm thinking this is true in all translations, is the preposition in. Is that what you all have? In hope? Mm -hmm. Now, uh, can I just do a little something here? The the Greek word there is epi. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything to you. But the normal Greek word for in is en. But that's that's not the term here. It's epi. Now, again, I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but you've got to flesh that out. So it is very appropriate to translate it in. But if you really want to flesh out the meaning of that term, and it's kind of cumbersome, but it would be with a view to, with the goal of. So if you if you really flesh out the ep preposition, we would read, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which facilitates, produces, and is in accord with godliness, with a view to, with a focus on, the hope of eternal life. See, that, that, that adds a nuance, doesn't it? In hope of eternal life. Okay, I got it, but then add, flesh out the appeal a little more. With a view toward, with a focus on the purpose of hope of eternal life, so faith connected to truth, which produces godliness, enriches our hope. Glorification. Huh? Glorification. Yeah, and and all that's associated with it. So to complete the circle, we would add glorification—the hope of eternal life. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, isn't, this, isn't this a neat introduction to a letter?
1: So in two verses, he basically covered two years of seminary.
0: Exactly. I, I mean, he's just dumped an enormous amount of doctrine on our lives. But with a view to, with the purpose of, hope of eternal life. Now, we, I know we've talked about this many times, but let's make sure we can get a good working definition of hope. What is a good working definition of biblical, genuine hope?
1: Well, my first observation is that as it's used here, it's a noun, mm-hmm. not a verb.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right.
1: <clears throat> so, I mean, it is it's something that we possess, mm. and that should solidify us or mm-hmm. influence us or give us confidence. or
0: Good word. Confidence, yeah. Confidence. Because hope is not a wish, is it? Biblical hope is not a wish. There's a certainty about it. There's a confidence about it. Um, it's not, well, this might happen. Uh, eternal life, well, maybe. Is that hope? No. My faith, which is anchored in the truth, which produces God living, energizes the certainty that what God promised he's going to fulfill he promised me eternal life as I study as I'm enriched as I grow in my faith and my walk with him my hope deepens that's why I studied under a man who defined hope as expectancy with desire that's how he defined it Expectancy. With desire, expectancy, it's going to happen. There's a certainty about it. This isn't a wish, it's going to happen. And I desire it. I can't wait for it to happen. That's why the early church would sign their letters and some of their early hymns with, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's hope. That's certainty with desire. Come quickly. And so is this an enriching... Summary of, of how Paul is linking everything together. Faith rooted in truth, which produces godliness, facilitates and enriches hope. And I know you, your friend of mine who's a pastor in North Omaha that I involved in his church for quite a few years, he would say to me, Jim, my people cannot live without hope. And so often, I mean, I mean, you know, in, in some of those situations in North Omaha, it's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, they're 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 anchored in generation after generation of defeat and dependency and entitlement, and to get help, help, help them get out of there, have hope that tomorrow can be better than today. And that's for you and me. We have no doubt tomorrow's going to be better than today. Not 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 just from an earthly dimension, but from the eternal. Yeah. Tomorrow's going to be better than this today. Absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just—it's a wonderful. But, okay, you're with that. So, I'm trying to link these key words together that are such an enriching part of this. We're still in the greeting of the letter, so we're not even at the meat yet of the letter. But did you see what he ever, did? You see what he says then? Hope you the eternally which God, and what does he say? Who never lies. That's an important <clears throat> reminder. God never lies. He never twists. He never distorts. He never misrepresents truth. When he says something, bank on it. And then he adds. Promise before the ages began. My hope is not centered in Fred or Jim or anybody else around this table, as wonderful and trustworthy as they are, it's centered in God. He never lies. And he's made a lot of promises to me. Do I believe he's going to keep those promises? Yep. Because he never lies. James says in his epistle, it is impossible for God to lie because all of his attributes are perfect. They're, they're attributes of perfection. It's when God is the God of truth, that's perfection. It is incapable for God to lie. So Peter's anchoring that attribute of God into the promises that God's made. And if God doesn't lie, will he keep my, his promises? Yep. Bank on it. And he said he's coming back for us. Bank on it. He's coming back for us. <laughs> If he said, I will never leave you or forsake you, bank on it. If he said, Law I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, bank on it. If he said, I'm sending my Holy Spirit who will indwell you, you put your faith in him, bank on it. That's now happened. If he says to you, I'm transforming you into the image of my son, Galatians 4.19, bank on it. That's what he's doing. No, I mean I'm just using examples but I I mean this is I love these two verses. I I just I think they're some of the richest verses in Paul's writings. I mean he must have said down how can I dump everything I've studied and everything I've learned and everything I've mastered into two sentences? <laughs> and that's just what he did. But again I'm just linking link faith, truth, godliness and hope together. Those four key they really almost concepts, but four key key terms, that are really, really, they really are at the center of of what it really means to be a Christian. And when you look at this, at least I think you would agree with me, when you look at this, this doesn't allow for shallow, superficial thinking, shallow, superficial living. This is deep, rich, doctrinal truth. And I, I, I just, uh, I love this and I hope it makes sense. Can we look at verse 3 yet before?
1: Uh, go ahead. Paul, Paul's got a, a lot of history to make this statement. And even though we, well, some of us don't have that history, we still, in looking back over we the short. <clears throat> time we've had this relationship with God through Jesus Christ we can see the same thing that Paul talks about in our own life even Absolutely. if it's uh, not Absolutely. the depth and the breadth of Paul because we haven't perhaps some of us haven't lived that long to have those different experiences sure. maybe Absolutely. and so we should be encouraged I guess this right. is the reason for it That's right. making the statement that maybe you know look at how God has worked in your life mm-hmm. like we had a guy in here and he said uh, I don't think I've changed that much and he had a friend that had been with him for known him for 20 years and he said oh no Tim he said you, you've made a lot of changes yeah so maybe it's yeah, you know that's right
0: but what I would like you to do applicationally is link those words: faith, truth, godliness, and hope, in your life. Because that, thats exactly that. What Paul wanted to do with his life is exactly what is happening in your life. I mean, that's you, you know, you've come to faith. You're now growing in that sustaining faith, and you grow by knowledge of the truth, which produces godliness and facilitates hope. That's it, that's it. That's exactly it. That's the Christian life in summary, albeit very brief, succinct summary. But that's it. Your hope will never be enriched if you don't continue to learn more and more about the majesty and power and grace and mercy of God and how you fit into what he's doing. I mean, it's just your your hope is enriched the more you know about him and the more you know about what he's doing and the more you know about his plan. And how you fit into that. Regardless of when you came to faith in Christ. So, I mean, it's just, this is, there's no, I don't think there's any better summary, and there are others, but any better summary of of everything that God wants to happen in each one of our lives. In these, in these uh, two verses. Look at verse 3 then. How are we doing here? Yeah, we can... Now, I I actually didn't add, promised before the ages began. So again, that's just, these are the promises of God that are anchored in eternity. (laughs) But, and at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, Now, Paul gets really personal now. So he said, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time, manifested in His Word. What did He manifest in His Word? All these promises. I mean, don't miss that connection. What's He talking about? Manifested in His Word, at the proper time. So all of His promises at the proper time have been manifested. So at the proper time. Why add that? Why not just? Why not just say? promised before the ages, manifested in his word. Maybe I'm going too fast and you're missing the, the question. God, who never lies, promised before the ages to come, manifested in his word. Well, we would get that. We would understand that. But that's not what he does. And at the proper time, manifested in his word. At the proper time is very similar to Galatians 4.4. 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under law. What's that reminding us of? When he adds that little temporal phrase, at proper time. God is the God of history. God is the sovereign Lord of history. Things don't just happen. It's a part of his plan, and that is manifested in his word, which is what I preach. This is what Paul says, through the preaching with which I've been entrusted. What's he preaching? He's preaching the promises that have been unfolded at the proper time through history. And if there were 357 prophecies about Jesus Christ's first advent, and there were over 600 promises about his second advent, humanly speaking, what are the odds these 600 plus are going to be fulfilled if all 357 of these were fulfilled? At the proper time, he fulfills his promises. Why is that important for you and me to know that? It takes us back. It enriches and builds our hope. This is a God who knows what he's doing. This is a God who is moving history in his direction. Satan is in the business of blowing things up. Jesus is in the business of putting them back together. Satan is in the business of fostering rebellion And pernicious dysfunction. Jesus is in the business of restoring a relationship with the living God based on the sacrifice of his son and getting us back on track. He's not interested in disorder. He's interested in order, purpose, meaning, value, enrichment. Words that are not even in Satan's vocabulary. So I mean again, I mean, this, this is verse three isn't this? This is a remarkable verse. Because it's tying all this stuff together, the promises made beforehand, at the moment of time, manifests in his word, and that's what I preach. That's what I preach. So when Jesus, excuse me, when Paul is in a synagogue and let's say in Pisidium and Antioch, and you know, there are hundreds of Jews there. And it says he's reasoning with them from the scripture. What do you think he's doing? Well, I, I'm pretty sure he would go to Isaiah 53 and say, "Here's what Isaiah 53 said the suffering servant would did. Here's what Jesus did three years ago. You make the connection. The prophecies of Micah said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. You know, he's, that's what he's, he's making all these connections. You, you, conclusion. I'm inviting you now to trust the one who's fulfilling the all these promises. I mean, so for you and me, it's can we trust a God who's made a lot of promises to us? Yeah, if he kept all 357 about the first advent, he's going to keep the other 600 and all those personal ones he's made to me about eternal life and ruling and reigning with him and having a brand new body that doesn't hurt in the morning when I wake up and I don't want to get any more headaches and and I I don't have to exercise. I hope we don't have to exercise in heaven. You know, all those things. That's,
1: yeah.
0: My hope is anchored in a God who never lies. And that's what Paul said. Well, we didn't even get verse 3 quite done yet. So we'll pick up with verse 3 next week. So, At this rate, we'll finish the book of Titus in 2021. <laughs> so, um, no it'll On a good
1: day.
0: Huh? On a good day. On a good day so. Because remember, if we don't reach our goals, it's not my fault. It's all your fault for asking <laughs> I'm on a kid. I really am. I encourage the questions. I love the questions. Let me pray here. We're a little later. Dear Lord, thank you for the time of uh, of enrichment and edification around the Word of God. Thank you that uh, we have the privilege of holding on our laps that are on the tables in front of us the Word of God, or on our phone, or on our computer. Uh, we live in a wonderful age when so much is available that we can uh, study comfortably. But more importantly, Lord, we're not just interested in studying it to fill our minds with the thoughts, as rich as that is, but also to allow you, through your Holy Spirit who indwells us, to take the word that he inspired to transform us. We're in the business of transformation. I should really say, Lord, you are in the business of transformation using your word. And uh, that's how Paul understood his ministry, linking faith with truth, godliness which produces hope. And that is there's no more succinct summary of what you're doing in our lives than those four terms. Thank you for these men. Uh, thank you for the time we've had around the word this, this afternoon. Bless them as they go our separate ways. Take care of them. Use them. Whatever whatever their life is, wherever they're doing now, God, they are important to you, and you have a purpose for them. Enrich them. Uh, give them the energy and enablement to represent you well in thought, in word, and in deed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.